Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, so with that, uh, I just want to say that we are really excited about this event tonight to have these two authors um, here with their books, both um, recently published by McSweeney's and both really exciting books for very different reasons, very different books, little to say that might <laughs> tie these <laughs> together subject-wise, um, except that I'm personally really excited about both of them. and. Um, so we're going to have uh, Adam go first. And uh, Adam Levin's stories have been published in Tin House, McSweeney's, and Esquire. He won the 2003 Tin House Summer Literary Seminars Fiction Contest and, and the 2004 Joyce Carol Oates Fiction Prize. Um, he's got his MA in clinical social work, um, which sort of makes sense knowing that, having gotten a little bit into this um, very funny novel, uh, from the University of Chicago and an MFA in creative writing from Syracuse. Uh, and his collection of stories, Hot Pink, will be published by McSweeney's next year. Um, and he lives in Chicago and teaches at Columbia College and uh, the Art Institute. Um, and I just want to say about the instructions, um, this hefty, um, very accomplished uh, first novel that um, I just sort of began to delve into it today and I already just can't wait to get back to it and I've just been hearing nothing about how funny and clever and unputdownable it is um, and so I'm so excited to have a 900 page novel um, that I can't put down. So with that, welcome Adam. Thank you. Um, I was told uh, by an actor friend that I'm supposed to patter for a minute so that you can get used to me because um, you thought I would be taller or shorter or something so but I'm bad at pattering um, I just quit smoking after like 19 years and I got I got nothing I'm really nervous my friend Sal's laughing he knows it's true uh, I should be smoking um, patter patter uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna read um, I'm gonna read uh, an excerpt from this from this book it's actually a piece of a scene slightly doctored for your listening pleasure. Uh, there are, it's from pretty early in the book. Y'all can hear me? Yeah. Uh, it's from pretty early in the book, but there's uh, some information that you should probably know, so I'm going to just go through that. Uh, and by then you'll be used to me. All right. Uh, first, uh, the narrator is uh, Gorian Maccabee. He's a 10-year-old boy who uh, may or may not be the Messiah. Uh, he just fell in love with a girl called June about an hour before the scene starts. Um, between falling in love with June and this scene, he tried and failed to smash the clock in the gym as a kind of tribute to his love. Uh, and the failure left him feeling kind of like, you know, like a failure, like, oh, I couldn't smash that clock. Um, and uh, lastly, uh, he, she, June has agreed to meet up with him later. And uh, he, to make, he's, he's it's, it's very important to him to make up for having failed at smashing the clock in tribute to his love for her. The young messiah, maybe. Okay, um, so so here goes. All right, you used to me. Okay. All right. You were allowed to drink caffeine drinks at Aptekisik, except you couldn't buy them there if you were a student. 
The only Coke machine was in the teacher's lounge. There was a coffee one too, and I liked to drink, to drink coffee if it was half cream and sugar the way my mom drank it. But Coke made my stomach burn. Still, I enjoyed breaking into the teacher's lounge for a Coke on occasion to practice stealth. I didn't care about getting any practice right then, and I certainly wasn't hoping to find any joy, nor was I kidding myself that a teacher's lounge Coke's value as a tribute was equivalent to a smashed apart gym clocks. But if I didn't do something at least a little hard for June, then what? The dickhead beaten feeling wouldn't go away. Apticusic's passing periods lasted four minutes, which meant four minutes tops to get in and out of the lounge unseen. There was always the possibility of a dawdling teacher or a teacher who would let her class out a couple minutes early and went straight to the lounge, but those things weren't worth being too concerned about, even though they ticked the clock down. With the right coinage ready, it wouldn't take more than 35 seconds to get the coke and exit. Even with a balled up dollar to flatten, I'd gotten in and out of there in under a minute. The thing to be concerned about was getting caught in the doorway. You had to hide in the doorway so you could stop the lock from clicking when the last teacher in the lounge left. It was the kind of door that automatically locks when it closes, and no one had been able to steal a key yet. So for coke getting purposes, it was lucky that the teacher's lounge was in Sea Hall, which had doorways the size of walk-in closets. They were meant to be buffer zones between hall noise and pedagogy. Like storm windows that trap cold between the panes, Sea Hall doorways were air chambers for trapping sounds, soundstorm windows. Some of the doorways were darker than others. My best friend Benji Nakamuk and I put the bulbs of most of the darker ones out for a contest we had in my third week at Aptikisik. Benji won the contest five to two, and it was him who blanked the teacher's lounge one. The door was not entirely dark, though. Dim light came from the panels in the hallway and brighter light from the other side of the door by way of the small door window. The window was higher up than my head, and the light it let through made a rhombus by my feet. It wasn't a rhombus I wanted to violate. To overstep its outline could mean exposure. It turned out its outline wasn't gray like I would have assumed either, but purple, and I thought that was nice, maybe poetry worthy, whatever that meant. And it occurred to me that maybe the coke I was getting for June, if a strong poem were taped to it, would come closer to approximating a smashed-faced gym clock than would a coke without a strong poem taped to it. Granted, I couldn't make a strong poem. But there was no doubt in my mind that a weak poem was a closer approximation to a strong poem than was no poem, and therefore a coke with a weak poem taped to it was a closer approximation of a smash-faced gym clock than a poemless coke. So I wrote June a weak poem in the doorway in my head. I won't tell you I'm not breaching the penumbra by Gurian ben Judah Maccabee. While I hide inside a doorway in Sea Hall, preventing my toes from breaking an outline, I reject a fancier string of words than this one because I don't know if you know penumbra. Because the doorway was darkest by the walls, the most stealth thing to do was become a wall by getting as flat as possible against one. But I needed to get some information first. I needed to know exactly how many teachers were in the lounge so I could stop the door as soon as it started to close behind the last one. I inched to the window and stood on my toes, angling my body so no one inside would be able to see me. And I had to employ phenomenal agility so I wouldn't violate the light rhombus either. I counted the heads, seven total, two bald, and dropped back onto my heels. Seven was a large number of people to hide from in a doorway. It got me edgy and my foot started tapping, which wasn't stealth. I crouched so it couldn't tap so easy, but that made me less flat. And then I remembered I was out of wing nuts and I got even edgier. Usually, I'd lay a wing nut on the floor in front of the door jam to prevent the lock from engaging. It was way too risky to stop the door with a hand. If the last teacher out lingered, which they usually did, they weren't the last out because they were rushing to teach, and you had your hand in the door, you'd be exposed in the light. 
And if the teacher turned around, they'd see the hand and who it was attached to. The right-sized wingnut was perfect for the job, though. It not only allowed the door to nearly close, which made it highly unlikely that a teacher would notice that anything was off, but the click of the contact between closing door and wingnut was almost identical to the click of the lock. All I had was a pen, a chewed disposable, a very thin cylinder. I didn't know if it could do the trick. If the bottom of the door was higher off the floor than the pen laid on its side, the door would pass over the pen and lock. I was really edgy. I was so edgy that I thought it. I thought you were really very edgy right now. And right when I thought it, the end of class tone came through the intercom to shock me like the punchline before the closing credits of a thousand stupid television shows. I revolved to face the wall and got as flat as I could. Then I started telling myself a children's version of the story of the kind of holiday I wanted to one day be the hero of. The version you'd tell kids who didn't know how to even read yet and couldn't understand the complexities of scripture. Like the version of Hanukkah where it's all about the oil, or the version of Rosh Hashanah that's all apples and honey and New Year's joy. But I was not the little kid with the big imagination who half-grown nice Jewish boys star in their novels to attempt to make readers feel special and congratulated. That kid's a drip. That kid has fantasies behind his closed eyes in order to escape the facts on the ground, and somehow he doesn't know it. The facts on the ground that I had to face if I wanted to get June a Coke were these. I was highly edgy, and I needed to stay pressed to the doorway wall for at least a couple minutes. In times of high edginess, I'd usually read or break things or fight or try to break all of my fingers at once. And since I couldn't stay pressed while doing those things, but couldn't stay pressed if I remained edgy either, I had to try something else. That's the only reason I told myself a story. It was the only way I could face the facts on the ground. And I made it a kid's one because kid's ones lack layers, and I was too preoccupied to get all in-depth. And I tried to keep it similar, at least thematically, to what I was doing, so I wouldn't lose focus on the task at hand. So I told me one about how Gurian got out of his cell, but was in such a rush that he didn't have time to get the keys to his manacles off the ring on the belt of the famously sadistic prison guard he'd clouded and left half-conscious on the third-tier catwalk, drooling strings that splashed on the heads of the general population while Gurian escaped, and the ways the holiday would celebrate all of it. The first teacher exited, passed me, was gone. The door squeaked three times on its hydraulics and clicked shut. The holiday's name would be Gurian's Escape. At the holiday meal, the youngest boy present would ask his father, a second teacher passed, three squeaks and a click, would ask his father a set of four questions. The boy would say, why on this night do we wear handcuffs and leg shackles at the dinner table? And his dad would say, because our hero and his people, our people, were restricted in their movements by robots in the arrangement. And the boy would say, why on this night do we smash glass bottles on the pavement in the parking lots of our township? And his dad, teacher three had a limp, two squeaks this time before the click, which meant I couldn't count on three. His dad would say, the glass bottles are clear like the rules of the robots, and all clear things may be broken, and so all clear things should be broken and shall be broken, for the noise of their breaking is the only pleasure to be gotten from them. Why on this night do we punch holes in the walls of popsicle stick models of schools after dessert, would say the boy. We forget, would say the dad, that the walls of schools can be broken like bottles. We forget that we can break them. We must remind ourselves that we are stronger than the house of the arrangement. And why on this night, the boy would say, do we celebrate Gurian's escape? And the dad would say, Gurian's escape was the birth of perfect justice in the world. Then there would be soup, and the dad would sneak off to hide a set of holiday handcuffs in a dark space between things or behind a thing. 
Between the meat and the dessert, the fourth and fifth teachers, I think Miss Farmer and Mr. Novi, but it wasn't worth revolving to make sure, stopped a few seconds in the doorway to flirt. She said, I was watching you write your lesson plans, and I couldn't help but admire the condition of your fingernails. He said, I'm so flattered to hear that. You know, between lifting weights every morning at the gym and making visual art in my spare time, I always assumed that people found them cracked and nubby. She said, visual art? I do needlepoint. I, but she was interrupted by the sixth teacher, whose voice I never heard before. He said, some kind of party here? And they all laughed fake laughs while exiting, and I couldn't count the squeaks for the laugh noise. But between the meat and the dessert, all of the children at the table would go looking in the dark spaces of the house for the handcuffs. Whoever found them would get a prize that the father and the finder would bargain about. The father would say, what do you want for a prize? And the finder would answer, power. And the father would say, power can be used, but it can't be had. If I had it to give, I would give it to you. You're my child. And the finder would say, then I want funniness. And the father would say, funniness is a kind of power. That is why people who try to have funniness are so rarely funny. How about some cash? <laughs> and the finder would take some cash for his prize. And there would be traditions at Schechter, Anshiemet, and at both Hebrew days. The students would build their popsicle stick schools all week long. They'd spend half the day of Erev Gurian's escape in arts and crafts. Paper mache handcuffs would be sculpted till noon, and they'd dry by 3.30, and the students would stay after to paint watercolor scenes of my escape on the handcuffs. They would paint me pressed against the inside of a doorway, becoming a wall. All day they'd sing a song that went famous in the prison, the guard who met with Gurian, famous in the prison, and Gurian bled his head. Oh, Gurian, 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 Gurian bled his head. They would sing it in school, and they would sing it in shul. And around the dining room table, they'd dance, handcuffed to each other, their leg shackles shed, singing my song and shouting l'chaims, their high-kicking shins getting bruised on the chairs, their hats and their yarmulkes all flying off, fragments of popsicle sticks in their hair, the joy so huge the good silver would melt and the china for company would crack on the placemats. Teacher number seven came out of the lounge. I was worried the hydraulics would only squeak twice before the door shut, like with the third teacher. So I revolved after the first squeak in order to get the pen in place before the second. But the teacher paused at the outer edge of the doorway, then turned her head to sneeze right when I was about to activate the pen block. And I had to keep still and shut my eyes so they wouldn't betray me flashing. The second squeak came, and I opened my eyes, tossed the pen down. It landed well, right against the jam. Another sneeze from the teacher. I closed my eyes again. There was a third squeak after all, and a third sneeze. Then the teacher's departing footsteps. Nothing clicked. I was in. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Adam. Um, so, <laughs> to move into a, a slightly different tone maybe um, <laughs> with Darren's book um, which uh, is just such uh, sort of hard to describe um, but incredibly moving book um, apparently made Pat Morrison tear up on air today <laughs> which I think is <laughs> a great story um, and uh, I love any book that sort of defies genre and this is um, one of those books it's you know um, been receiving just incredibly fabulous press um, and about Darren um, I've been a fan of uh, his previous book Chang and N which is uh, fantastic it was a New York Times notable book and uh, so was uh, The Real McCoy um, and also uh, the national bestseller More Than It Hurts You 
Um, he was the recipient of the 2006 Guggenheim Fellowship in Fiction Writing and numerous other awards for writing fiction. Um, his work has been translated into 14 languages and published in over 20 countries. And he's Associate Professor um, of Writing at NYU. And we're thrilled to have him with Half a Life. So thanks. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, that's a very hard act to follow. It's bad to follow someone funny. Uh, so, um, this is not a funny story, uh, unfortunately. Uh, I won't say anything about it other than it is a true story, unfortunately, so I'll just start with that. Yeah, I never thought I would write nonfiction, but uh, I did, so here it is. Half my life ago, I killed a girl. I had just turned 18, and when you drive a new post-adolescence, you drive with friends. We were headed to shoot a few rounds of putt-putt. It was May 1988. The breeze did its open window work on the hair behind my neck and ears. We had a month before high school graduation. I was at the wheel. Up ahead, on the right shoulder, a pair of tiny bicyclists bent over their handlebars. The horizon was just my town's modest skyline done in watercolors. We all shared a four-lane road. The bicycles traveled in the same direction as my car, bare legs pedaling under a long sky. I think I fiddled with the radio. Hey, what song is this? So turn it up. Then one of the bike riders did something. I remember only that, a glitch on the right. My Oldsmobile stayed in the far left lane. After a wobble or two, the bicyclist eased a wheel on, into the road, maybe 30 feet away. My tires lapped up the distance that separated us. Next, next the bicycle made a crisp turn into the left lane in my sudden car. Dark blonde hair appeared very clearly in my windshield. I remember a kind of mechanical curiosity about why this was happening and what it might mean. This moment has been for all my life a kind of shadowy giant. I'm able tick by talk to remember each second before it. Radio, friends, thoughts of mini-golf, another thought of maybe just going to the beach. The distance between car and bicycle closing, anything could still happen. But I am powerless to see what comes next. The moment raises a shoulder, lowers its head, and lumps away. And then it's too late. My forearm hooks to protect my eyes. The front seat passenger shouts. I picture my foot disappearing under the dash, kicking down for the brake, straining farther than any real leg can go. Yet the hood of my Oldsmobile met Celine Zilke at 40 miles an hour. Her head cracked the windshield. The windshield cracked her head. I remember the yellow reflector from her spokes, a useless spark, kicking up the glass incline and over the roof. My car bumped onto the grassy median. And then I must have done all the normal driver things, put on the clonking hazards, rolled to a stop, rolled to a stop cut the engine. I must have stepped onto the grass in my t-shirt and shorts. I simply have no memory of how I got there. Celine Zilke, the girl I killed, was 16 and always will be 16. And I knew her. She went to my school. Celine was an 11th grader. I see her playing field hockey in blue gym shorts. Celine had been that lively athletic type one always imagines in shorts. Or I see her settled in beside friends on the concrete benches just outside the cafeteria, or ticking off notes in the public speaking class we took together. Celine sat by the window. When I look back now, she strikes me most of all as young. I walked to where Celine lay on the road. I didn't know who I'd hit or even that we'd had a serious collision. I thought in terms of broken arms and getting in trouble with my parents. Then I reached her and noticed the peculiar stillness of her face. 
This stillness transformed her. I didn't even recognize her. The eyes were open, but her gaze seemed to extend only an inch or so. This openness that does not project out is the image I have of death, everything present, nothing there. She lay on the warm macadam in oblique angles, arm bent up and out, foot settled under a knee. In the skin between her eyebrows, there was a small imprinted purple horseshoe of blood. I think maybe she's hurt, said my friend Dave. We couldn't tell if there was any life coming from her pale, parted mouth. Maybe she's hurt might pass for an obvious statement when you hear it now, but it didn't as we stood over Celine on that morning. Her face looked relaxed, as if she were lost in thought. Yet I could feel my own breathing rev up. And that's all I felt. A tragedy's first act is crowded with supporting players. Witnesses crimping their faces, policemen scribbling in pads and making radio calls, EMS guys unfolding equipment, tubes, and wheels. I must have managed to ask how Celine was doing, because at some point a policeman told me she was, under, she was unconscious but holding on. I remember talk of cardiac arrest of a medevac helicopter coming to take her to the hospital. I had a somewhat thick-headed sensation that everyone was responding appropriately to what was clearly a crisis. But I still didn't think there was any reason to freak out. This was something fixable. It was being fixed. Still, I'd been careful not to stand any place where I could see Celine again, her face's semblance of musing calm, her unnatural position. Police had suspended traffic on the highway's two sides. My friends made cameo appearances as standers, mullers, back rubbers. I thought how strange it was that, in normal, in normal life, we all touched so rarely. Traffic, I now understood. I'd started to think abstractly. Traffic is a kind of stream crowded with fish, a rush of momentum, and we'd been yanked to the side of the brook and forced to dry in the sun. I'd become one of those sights I'd driven past a hundred times on the expressway, the locus of a thousand strangers' curiosity. That's the thing about shock. You can have these clear and selfish perceptions as you circle without looking at the truth lying alone on the street. The most embarrassing memory of that day came when two teenage girls materialized from one of the stopped cars nearby. I heard the thunk of doors closing. And next, the young women came walking over the grass. They were sexy and not from my school. Both wore shorts and white sleeveless undershirts. One smelled optimistically of suntan oil. Hey, she said, you in that crash? Her voice a mix of apprehension and prying. Yeah. Wow, oh man. I know. You all right? Yeah, I said, I am, thanks, and walked away. Having acknowledged my own centrality and drama and sensing the girls were still watching, I dropped to my knees and covered my head with my hands, fingers between the ears and temples, like a man who's just won the U.S. Open. This plagiarized, quote, emotional reaction, acted out for girls I'd never see again, is one more stomach-turning fact of that afternoon. Aw, oh, the girl said, coming over to me, you know it wasn't your fault. I didn't even nod, I just got up and showboated away from them, shoulders back. I went over to the bustle around Celine, the important bustle from which these girls were excluded. I can only explain it like this, there was still a, dis a disconnect between me and the realness of what was happening. I've come to see our central nervous system as a kind of vintage switchboard, all thick foam wires and old-fashioned plugs. The circuitry isn't properly equipped. After a surplus of emotional information, the system overloads, the circuit breaks, the board runs dark. That's what shock is. My father arrived. Someone must have called him, though this was before cell phones. It was the sight of my dad that day, the clean sadness on his face, that turned this real finally. 
All this had happened to me. I had done this. I was his son. Dad was somehow like a new circuit in the fuse box. He arrived. Emotion could flow. In his hug, I went out all at once into tears as I never had before and haven't since. I don't remember how long we'd all been there, whether I'd gone to look at Celine's excessively pale face again. A psychologist later told me such memory skips have been installed for our own protection. Trauma makes a spark that in a white glow washes out details, guilt, shame, a flare that throws the recent past into shadow and deep obscurity. A policeman shambled over. His eyes glided across my face. He asked me clipped questions. How fast had I been going? Had I been drinking? About 40, I guess, and no, no, Jesus, no. Someone, perhaps a new EMS arrival, finally took charge. All right, folks, step back. He decided on the best way to transport Celine. The how of his plan escaped me and still does. But an ambulance did wheel in and get Celine finally and somehow away from all the stopped cars. They took her to the hospital, and my passengers, Mike and Jeff, twin friends who'd been in the back seat, also managed to get out of there. And then after the traffic was unjammed, after the police told me I was, quote, free to go, <clears throat> and with a suddenness and ease out of sync with the scale of what was happening, it seemed a form of insanity to touch the car again. My dad just slipped into the driver's seat. Dave took dad's car. I fell into mine beside my father, and we were off. I sat in the front passenger seat. A crack in the car's windshield measured the length of the glass. Sunlight caught in tendrils that raked out from its sides. <clears throat> My parents, after offering the quiet voice inevitables, told me not to beat myself up about it. I don't remember what Dave and I did the rest of the afternoon. I certainly didn't phone Celine's family. She and I hadn't really known each other, not well enough or really much at all, and so I was too afraid to phone or even to look up the Zilkies in the white pages. You should go to a movie, my parents told me, trying their best. A benign suggestion, maybe, but I didn't want to be seen trying to enjoy myself. Judging by the EMS worker's concerned brows, I was afraid Celine might actually die. She could already be dead. I didn't want to appear capable of any emotion but remorse, so I traveled to a theater in some other town. I must have believed that keeping up a picture of constant remorse was the same morally as living in constant remorse. That night, Dave and I drove down near the county line to see Stand and Deliver. Heading to the multiplex, the weirdness of being out of not being under house arrest, settled on me like ash. Shouldn't I have at least considered visiting Celine's hospital room? Before Stand and Deliver had even started in the lobby, I came across a guy from my town. Why visit her hospital room, though? What could I offer? And one of those coincidences that life hands over more realistically than fiction can, the guy in the lobby was my good friend, Jim. Jim trotted up to me online at the ticket booth. Heard what happened, he said. Yeah, I said. I didn't see her until it was too late. I apologized. Holy shit, he said. Was there something off about his facial presentation? Where was the concern, or even a little solemnity? I sensed something weird in him right away, mockery nibbling there at the side of his mouth. And now he raised his hands, palms out, next to high-pitched, ah, then please, please don't run me down, and then more comic squeals, little darts tossed in the air. Dave showed, Jim an eloquent, uh, Dave showed Jim an eloquent frown, quit it, quit it. But next, an even nastier sound, Jim's slashing laugh. He was cracking up at me. Dave's appalled stare, the shuffling feet of a conversation breaking down. Then Jim said, no, you're upset? Really? Come on. Hey, what's wrong with a joke? Nothing wrong with a joke. What's, what's wrong with a joke? Everything. I felt panicky and bright and swollen, hugely sad, acutely seen, 
I slouched away, tucked myself into the theater's dark, and had a sense of being extinguished. The let up in perception, the no input cluelessness, that's the kind of shock everyone's familiar with. But shock is not a one-time event. That system junking you experience at the start goes away, of course. But then a lesser shock keeps showing up to hurl a big muffling blanket over you. And when you push out of that, you feel it almost as a sudden blinking exposure to light. I'm talking about how your mind behaves after the broken circuit appears to be back up and running. I mean, why did I feel half okay there in the multiplex parking lot? And why did I continue to feel that way until Jim's cackle? The truth about shock and about our bodies is that they don't want us to feel things deeply. We're designed to act, react, forget, to be shallow. I knew I was normal. I had been a normal, normally embraced person 24 hours before. But would a normal person feel even halfway okay, as I seemed to feel now? Was it as if I'd somehow forgotten the accident? Well, I remembered, of course. I remembered without end. In fact, one me kept remembering how another me from a second ago had just remembered the maybe life-destroying horror on West Shore Road, destroying perhaps two lives. And I'd remember how I'd just been enduring that a second ago and catch myself remembering it. And then I'd remember her reflector scuttling up the windshield, the sensation of my working to swerve, the surprise of her being so close and detailed. It wasn't really me feeling it at any one time. Rather, I was remembering those other me's. We each shared it together, and all of us were overly compassionate to one another. And here's a cruel truth. The more accurate thing is that I kept sort of remembering without end. <coughs> My brain persisted, as any bodily organ would, in trying to heal what was in effect a bruise. The bruise was the memory. And to remain what I thought of as human, I had to keep fighting against my basic animal healing response. That's what the first day was like. The sensation I was fighting is maybe close to denial, but it's not exactly denial. My fear now is that all of this sounds over-aestheticized and vague. There were times when the size of what had happened felt like a kind of nauseated grin. I'd done something this incalculably big, and here I was, still alive. I was okay. I'd hit a girl with my car, but the way the world worked I, w worked, I wasn't in jail, I wasn't hurt. I was free to indulge in a movie. It was this thought that made me leave the movie before it ended. The part of the brain that isn't automatic is an imagining machine, feeling all possibilities of feeling. It keeps pushing its way into this marshy, pleasant terrain. You struggle against that push and start to feel your stomach protest. It's not so much even a type of consciousness as it is a circumstance, into which you pass by slow degrees. I've never seen this sufficiently examined. It mutates into a less unreal reality that still seems different somehow than being fully present. Self-hate is rarely unconditional. I don't pretend that it's all right that I felt even half okay. At home that first night, I had patchy, mundane dreams about normal things. It would be nobler and less uncomfortable to write that I tossed sleeplessly or that I woke with a scooped-out pain in my gut or that I sat down in my underwear at my desk that had moonlight on it and I had the terrible sense one gets after something irrevocable of being in the wrong place, of having awakened into a new and cramped world. This is the sense I would have on many nights later. I ended up scouring through the details of the day. Those EMS guys talking about cardiac arrest, about loss of blood, about not liking your chances. I homed in on that word, chances, with its promise of upside, and not on how the paramedic's voice had tightened, the odds seizing his throat. So few of our days contain actions that are irrevocable. Our lives are designed not to allow for anything irrevocable. The school part of our lives continues to be the school part for 18 years. The work parts stay the work parts, and if we're lucky, nothing disarranges them. 
The small inconsistencies get buried under talk, explanations, rescheduling. If everything couldn't continue as planned, no real plans could be made. But the breakfasts and TV afternoons and band practices of teenage life had been disrupted by something irrevocable, and I was new to it. And how did I handle this? What I want to write is that I lay there until morning with tear-stained eyes, a tear-stained pillow, a tear-stained life. What can one do with levels of gloom and guilt, fear and disbelief, of bewilderment above one's capacity to register? I slept soundly. A police officer called the next morning to say that Celine had died in the hospital. It was unclear whether her parents who had been on vacation had been able to see her. My father answered the phone. The officer never asked for me. My surest memories of that day are the reflector running up the windshield and the sunshine in the cracks as Dad got me home. I can imagine the flash of impact, of course, even if I'm unable really to call back much about it. But it's not hard to guess at the terrible scratched out details. The truth is anyone with a TV can fill the scene, taking snippets from the editing floor, plugins from the visual and sound effects library we all carry. Pretty girl on bike, a shy little thud, hysterical windshield. And I'm somewhere in there too, trying to swerve, trying to disappear. The, Celine, the police, Celine's biking companion, and the recollection of five cars worth of eyewitnesses all conspired to declare me blameless. No charges were filed. A police detective named Paul Vitucci later told the newspaper, quote, for an unknown reason, the, her bicycle swerved into what you might call the traffic portion of the street, and she was immediately struck by the car. There was no way he, meaning me, no way he could have avoided the accident, no way whatsoever. I remember coming down to breakfast and my parents showing me that article. I remember thinking two things. One, I'm fine. The sweet, marshy part felt, you made it. And the other part said, two, well, that's it. I'm in the paper for the world to read about. There's no hiding from this. And I was right. After the story appeared in the local paper, everyone did find out. One friend who lived about an hour north was startled awake by his mother with the news. I'm sure my parents worried about me, but I don't th remember what they said, and I don't think they tried to make contact with Celine's family. Very soon I got to the article's climax, Vitucci, eyewitnesses, unprovisional absolution. Society was clearing me, but how could any reporter be so certain? If I hadn't been with my friends, felt them next to me in the, and in the back seat, if I hadn't tried to point all of us towards something fun, maybe I would have focused on Celine, or driven slower, or honked sooner, though I was positive I had honked when I'd first seen her inch away from the shoulder and into the right lane. Any of 10 different actions on my part might have led to an alternate ending. Maybe I hadn't felt the right amount of alarm just before the girl jumped across two lanes. On a map, Long Island looks like a tailless crocodile with its mouth open. Its far shore yawns into a pair of peninsulas 100 miles east of New York City, and the crocodile's hind end nestles right up against Manhattan. Not too far up the crocodile's back sits Glenhead, my town, the patch of low-paved swampland where Selene and I went to school at North Shore High. Manhattan casts a thin shadow onto Long Island. For most people, life in Glenhead verged on total disconnection from the city. Ours could have been any suburb anywhere. Though when traffic was easy, it took us just a half hour to reach tall and shaded Midtown. As you drive the Long Island Expressway toward North Shore High School, the city relaxes its grip on the land. Soon you're in the middle of wide suburban ho-humness. Though western Long Island differs from a real country milieu in all kinds of major ways, traffic snags, no silos. It's true that North Shore High, only a public school despite the upscale name, largely middle-class middle Italian and middle-class Irish, was small enough for everyone to know everyone else's business. 
which meant many uncomfortable things. This wasn't close to first among my worries and sadnesses, but it would be a lie to pretend it wasn't somewhere in my thoughts. I'd violated the primary rule of junior and senior high. Don't get people talking about you too much. This was wearing the brightest shirt on the playground. This was mom giving you a kiss in the lobby, raised to the highest power. The thought of returning to school made me feel swollen and incandescent again. I was disgraced, I was blessed, alive, and journalistically absolved. I would be cafeteria news, the object of a discreetly pointed finger or nod. I would be the heavy, dark ingot from the adult world, the world of consequences, introduced into the nothing counts ethos of adolescence. So here's the next stage of guilt, when it's about to become social. There were two parts about me. There were two parts of me that I wanted to keep above water, respect for Celine and a concern for her family. That seemed right and maybe even selfless. But the water that kept lapping over was this. How would people see me? How do I keep the accident from being the main thing about me forever? Thanks. Thank you both so much. Um, and thank you everyone for coming. The books are for sale up at the front. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.